We covered last Sunday the first 15 verses of the book of Judges. And in doing so, we established a a pretty heavy introduction to the book itself. We established some context, some background. We tied this book into the greater canon of the Old Testament scriptures. And we needed to do that in order to establish its relevancy. This is a very relevant book. For the proof of that, look no further than the last book, the last verse of the book, where we're told in this sad exchange admission that everyone, and this was God's people, everyone did what was right in the eyes of God? No. They did what was right in their own eyes. You think relativism is a new phenomenon. No, it has its, its origins back in the garden, and we see it manifest within Israel And this is why we have the book of Judges, to address the things that were happening. The book of Judges covers a period of Jewish history ranging anywhere from about 400 to 450 years. Uh, It begins with the death of Joshua, who was the heir to Moses, led the people into the land. Begins with the death of Joshua, concludes with the birth of Samuel, uh, who was the final judge and the first of the prophets. Uh, In Acts chapter 13, uh, we get the time frame from the Apostle Paul. Paul said that it was about about 450 years between the two. So that's where we get the establishment of our time period. Again, so much that we could recap that we can't for the sake of time. I do want to get to the text. But there is one idea that is central to your understanding of the book of Judges that we weren't able to address last Sunday that I do want to take a moment to unpack. And it's the idea of idolatry. Uh, It is a central theme to the book of Judges. It is a central idea that necessitates God's judgment of his people and then God's deliverance from that judgment through the raising up of these judges, these heroes, these Old Testament heroes. Again, we have 12 cycles of disobedience, judgment, repentance throughout the book. We have seven major judges that God raises up. But when you read through the book and you start reading about some of these foreign gods, and you start reading about how the children of Israel, uh, God's big criticism was idolatry, that God didn't want them to serve any god but him, that God wanted, and you should note this, uh, full control over every part of their lives. God reveals himself as a jealous God. He wants to be one and two and three and four. God doesn't want to share with anyone when it comes to our heart. Now, we talk about idols. And right off the bat, when I say the word idol, I would imagine that in your mind, you you are picking out some type of either uh, mystic symbol, some type of uh, Hindu uh, icon, maybe even a little Buddha statue. That's what you think of with an idol, And you imagine that, you know, idolatry is erecting such a little thing in one's house and paying homage to it and lighting incense and worshiping it. And you look at that kind of an idea, knowing that people do this, and you're like, that seems stupid. Idolatry. Maybe that's a problem for other people, but you're not going to find me with a little Buddha statue in my living room. So idolatry. How is this applicable? Why does God make such a big deal about it? How is the examination of this ancient culture relevant to my culture when I don't see any idols, or do you? Let me redefine, maybe not redefine, but clarify what the concept of an idol is. For an idol is anything or anyone that you place in your life in a preeminent position 
other than God and him alone. Now, if you expand that definition, we are now speaking beyond golden little statues. We're speaking to all kinds of things. You see, I think we are probably one of the most idolatrous generations of all time. They just take on a different shape, a different form. I think the church is probably the most idolatrous church, the American church anyway, in church history. Again, when we look at an idolatry as being anything that we place in our life into a superior position other than Jesus. Now, how do we do that? First, you need to understand, every human being is a worshiper. You are naturally, by nature, a worshiper. You will worship things. This is as innate to the human psyche, to the human psychology, as breathing or as a sex drive. You were created by God with the desire to worship. And you will worship. Now, what do we worship? Well, we worship gods. That's what we worship. That's the structure and the design. Now, God wants our worship, and he alone wants our praise. And yet, we often worship other things. You could call them idols. How does that happen? Not only does everyone have the innate sense of worship, but everyone also, whether they will admit it or not, has an innate fear of hell. Now, I'm not necessarily referring to the literal actual place that is titled hell with fire and brimstone where there's weeping and, and gnashing of teeth. But everyone is fearful of a type of hell. And we can define hell within this context for uh, application's sake. The one thing that makes you most miserable that you want to avoid the most. You, a personal hell. Everyone will establish or has some type of a personal hell that replaces the actual hell we should all be afraid of. What does that look like? Well, for some people, it might be their figure. It might be rooted in body issues, insecurities that run deep. And the biggest thing that you fear that you and, and I'm not I'm not making light, I'm not trying to be funny, is swimsuit season. And so you're in this dynamic where you're like, I, I'm horrified of looking fat, of not being pretty. There's this perspective established within our culture of this is what genuine beauty looks like. And I'm trying to live up to that because the worst thing is for me to not achieve that. This is hell. This is hell. And what will you do? You don't want hell, so you will find something to save you from hell. A gym membership. A workout routine, a life coach. You see, you have something you're afraid of, and there can be deep reasons. And then you will establish saviors for that thing, and what do you do to the savior? You worship them. For some of you, you're deeply afraid of financial insecurity. Oh, if I could speak honestly, that's been one of the biggest things in my life. Financial insecurity, money. That's a fear, not being able to provide, not having enough, not being able to have certain luxuries, not being able to provide for my kids or my family or have a house or this or that. Running out of money. Money, for some people, is this deep, it's, 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 we establish it as a hell. And then what do we do? We seek saviors for that. 
a job or a career, an investment plan, and we worship it. Why do you think that some men end up sacrificing their families they're working to provide for at the altar of that job? They sacrifice their family by working 60, 70, 80 hours a week and being gone most of the time. An idol. For some of you, your biggest fear is loneliness. It's hell to be alone. And what do you do? You seek after a boyfriend or a girlfriend and you establish that person as a savior. And you worship them. It begins in a very unhealthy dynamic because even if you were to marry, you're in a, a situation where you've now placed a spouse in a preeminent position above Jesus. You see, if your issue is body figure find, Jesus, Jesus is the savior because you're trying to mask deeper insecurities. Things in outfit or makeup aren't going to fix. Finding that confidence that I'm beautifully and fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm a child of God, and this is a fake thing out there. Jesus is my Savior. I'm and your job, who's the provider? You're not being asked to sacrifice your family on the altar of a career. Jesus says, I will provide. The birds of the air don't have, have, have needs. I take care of them. How much more will I take care of my own? You see, what's interesting about idolatry is idols can actually be good things placed in the wrong place or position in your life. And so when we read about idolatry in the book of Judges and we read about how God deals with idolatry and, he's, and he's, he can be angry, it's because he knows that what we are chasing are counterfeit gods and inadequate saviors who just subjugate us into a deeper bondage and they're terrible to worship. That's why God's like, get your eyes off of all of this other stuff. Worship me and me alone. Why? Because I'm the only savior that exists. For whatever it is that you need saving. Let's dive back into the text again. Judges 1 and 2. I believe likely written by Samuel, the prophet. He's doing a bit of a, a prologue, a bit of an introduction. He's kind of weaving uh, some of the, the few chapters that wrap up the book of Joshua into some new information. But he's establishing kind of an idea by which the, the rest of the book, this period of history, will be established upon. And, and, and understand, when you're reading kind of Eastern literature, um, the Eastern thought process is not as linear or as interested in chronology necessarily as Western uh, thought processes based in, um, in logic, establishing Grecian thought, um, etc. And so there's a lot of jumping around sometimes historically. We're not given like this exact chronological. Samuel's running with a point, with a purpose. He's establishing an idea, so we need to keep that in mind. We concluded, verse 15, we're diving back in, Judges 1, verse 16. Now the children of the Kenite, and just in case you have no idea who they are, we're told Moses' father-in-law. And in case you don't know who he is, <laughs> go back to the beginning chapters of the book of Exodus, when Moses had fled Egypt and was in the wilderness for 40 years. He was tending the sheep of Jethro, his father-in-law 
who end up being grafted into the children of Israel. They're given an inheritance and a place uh, within the land. And so now the children of the Kenite, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. And Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites, who had inhabited Zephah, and utterly destroyed it. So the name of that city was called Horam. Also Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, Ekron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah. If only the verse ended there. Because it doesn't. And they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. Again, with the death of Joshua, the children of Israel had conquered the land. And yet, within the land still remained pockets of resistance. You had various people groups that God had been cl clear to the children of Israel needed to be destroyed and removed from the land. Again, God, knowing the tendency of his people to compromise, to play the harlot, to be susceptible to, to bad influences, wanted to eliminate that opportunity, wanted to eliminate uh, th those temptations. So Joshua grants the great victory. They're in the land. The land's divided up. All of the tribes have their allotted territories. The book opens with the children of Israel following the death of Joshua being like, hey, the work isn't done. We've been given the victory, now we need to enjoy the victory. We've been granted the land, now we need to enjoy the land. If the land was provided by faith, now it's our obedience and faithfulness that will help us maximize the life we've been given. Sound familiar? Jesus gives us the victory, now we're walking and enjoying a life of victory. Obedience plays a role, an important role, faithfulness maximizing all that Jesus has for you. Hey, God created you, and Jesus died to save you for a life, a life that you might live that's abundantly above what you can imagine. But we have to enjoy that life. We have to experience. We have to occupy the land. And so the people come to the Lord, which was a good start. It's how the book opens. And they say, hey, there's still these people groups here. There's still pockets of resistance. What do we do? And God's very clear at the very beginning of the book, I want the tribe of Judah to take the lead and to, to root out these pockets of resistance. And prophetically, that's consistent with Genesis 49 and the fact that it would be the rod that would come out of the tribe of Judah. Ultimately, David would come out of the tribe of Judah and then later on Jesus. Judah being called commission, but right from the beginning, what does he do? I'll give you the victory, Judah, go take care of it. And Judah's like, sounds great, uh, Simeon, you want to roll. Wait, wait, I didn't tell you and Simeon to go. I said you. And so right from the beginning, we see a partial obedience. A partial obedience to God's word. We're going to do the things that we like about what you said, Lord. But, you know, we'll add a little bit to it. I mean, you didn't say not, Simeon. You just said us. You know, they're parsing. And so we see as they're working their way through the land, some great victories and some defeats. We see some great steps of faith, and we see some drawbacks. And here we have 
a notable one. They drove out the mountaineers, but you had the inhabitants of the lowlands, and they're afraid. And, and we're told they're afraid because the Canaanites that dwelt in the lowlands had chariots of iron. Now, in ancient culture, this was high-end technology. They got tanks. Now, where do tanks not work well? And the mountains. So, hey, conquering in the mountains, well, that we can do that. But they're looking down in the valley, and they're like, do we really need the valley? I mean, look at these chariots of iron. We know the Lord promised victory, and we've seen that victory manifest here in the, in, in the mountains. But, you know, really, is it necessary? You see, they're afraid. Now, what makes it so ironic is that this isn't the first time we've seen chariots. Moses delivers the people. They're on their way out of the land. They get to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh has kind of a change of heart. And he goes and he pursues them, right? With what? Chariots. I mean, at the time, Egypt was the greatest, most powerful army on the planet. And they had chariots. Was that a match for the Lord? See, God had already granted victory over... Who cares about tanks and Apache helicopters when I've got God? And they cop out right here. You see, they got their eyes off of the Lord and onto the problem. I, I should say that, friend, there are big challenges to life. And there are things that you will see and you'll think, I have no idea how I'm going to overcome that. And yet, if you get your eyes off of the temporary problem, as big as it might be, I promise it's never as big as God. And it might be a challenge. It might be a stronghold. It might be a powerful enemy, but not for God. Their problem, as they were looking down in the lowlands, they got distracted by chariots of iron when they should have kept their gaze heavenward. So Moses, we're told, they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said. Caleb expelled from there the three sons of Anak, which we have their names earlier in the chapter. This is kind of a repeating of things. And the, uh, the Anakins, again, you can study them on your own. It's kind of a, it's a, it's a weird tale. They were giants. Um, there's some concepts of the Nephilim that you can get into Genesis chapter 6. You want to get some trippy stuff in Scripture? Go down that rabbit hole. We won't. Uh, but Caleb is given this great victory over these giants. But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwelt with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day, which indicates for us that the book is written before David, because David would ultimately uh, conquer Jerusalem and establish it now as the city of David. He would make it his capital. And so, again, more proof that this was written before David, likely by Samuel, because at the time of the writing, you had these Jebusites still dwelling within Jerusalem. What's ironic is if you go back to verse 8, we're told that the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it, and they struck it with the edge of the sword. They set the city on fire. But then so many verses later, the 
Benjaminites weren't able to get rid of the Jebusites. Now, the tribe of Benjamin had not been commissioned by God to do anything. This was the job of Judah. So Judah, granted a victory, is no longer paying attention. Which, again, is a good indication for us. As we unpack this life that God has had, has had, that God died to provide for us, that we have. There will be battles along the way, temptations and trials, things, you know, as you're learning to grow in Christ and to walk with Christ and enjoy this life, learning to walk in the Spirit so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh, learning to grant victory, putting on the armor of God. There will be times that God will grant you a victory. And you're like, great, victorious, and you're moving on. Whoa, you should be careful. You should be careful. Have you been in, in your life where something that you had conquered a few years later rears its ugly head again? You're like, I thought I was done with that. And now it's back again. Again, Judah should have been vigilant to maintain the territory they had gained victory over as much as they were gaining new territory. Verse 22, in the house of Joseph, also went up against Bethel. Bethel means house of God. And the Lord was with them. Bethel is called house of God, for it was the location where Jacob, when he runs from Esau, Jacob comes to this, at the time, pretty much a, a wilderness area. And he's given this vision of heaven. He has this dream of the ladder and the angels going up and down. And he calls that place Bethel. It's the house of God. It's where God had made contact with man. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. So Bethel has become a stronghold of the Canaanites. The city was formerly Luz. So at the time it was called Luz. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, please show us the entrance of the city and we will show you mercy. So he showed them the entrance to the city and they struck the city with the edge of the sword and they let the man and his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a city, called its name Luz, which is its name to this day. And now again, Samuel's including stories for us to establish things that were going on within the people. Now you have the, the, the sons of Joseph. They go to this city. We're going to take this city. They can't find the entrance. It's a hidden entrance. So they see someone coming in and out, and, and then, so they approach him with a deal. Hey, we're going to take the city one way or the other. If you show us the entry, makes it easier for us, we'll grant mercy to you. The problem with that, did God say to do that? No, at no point. Like, it's easy to, to, well, that's such a nice deal. This guy just kind of wandering around, you know. It's a little bit of, and there's some precedent, right? If you go back to when they were going into the land, and they come to Jericho, and the spies are trying to figure out some things, and they go in, they're almost caught, and they're hidden, concealed from a harlot named Rahab. And Rahab demonstrates this great faith, and then she makes an appeal, doesn't she? Hey, please remember my kindness. Remember my goodness. I know God's behind you. Save me. And she puts out this scarlet cord out of her window. And all the walls fell down but hers. And then she gets grafted into the people. She becomes part of the lineage. Interesting. 
She becomes part of the lineage of King David himself. The genealogy you'll find at the end of the book of Ruth. Rahab to Ruth to David. But this is a totally different precedent. Like something unique happens with Rahab. And so maybe they're approaching this guy thinking, hey, we'll be kind to you. The city will fall. We'll use some human ingenuity. We'll get around the corner here. And in doing so, you'll be like, oh, man, you guys are awesome. And you're going to live with us. The problem is what? The city falls. It gets handed over. They change the name from Luz back to Bethel, which is what God wanted. This guy's like, peace, homies. He goes to the Hittites and builds another city. Did they ever conquer Luz? No, it moved. And and Samuel is just, again, recording this story to show the dangers of just not obeying God. It seemed harmless enough, but look at the consequence. Luz just relocated. Verse 27, however, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages, or Tanik and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Eblam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. That's sad. <laughs> like here we have like partial victories, partial victories, we got some things working, some, and then we get to Manasseh, and it's like, yeah, that's cool, y'all just hang. They didn't drive out anybody. Because the Canaanites were determined to dwell in the land. Well, what about them being determined to obey God? And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out. Again, we'll see this repeated. They're weak. They're not walking by faith. They're not being obedient. They let the Canaanites stay. Then they get strong, and they're like, well, we could, we could totally get rid of these Canaanites. I mean, they were determined to stay when we were weak. Now that we're strong, we can do whatever we want to with them. And then what seeps in? But you know, this could be profitable. Yeah, I know this is what you want, Lord, but I mean, we could make some money and use it for your, your stuff, God. You ever made that excuse? God, I know it's dirty, but I'll tithe on it. I, you know, you know. Okay, God, I'm not going to take. I'm not going to do my taxes all the way thorough, so I get a return, but I'm going to give you part of it. We're good, right? We cut corners. They look at the Canaanites and they're like, well, they, they were really determined to stay. We should have stepped up in faith, driven them out. But now, like, we can, we can tax them. And they let them stay. Greed, disobedience, compromise. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Neholi. Or the Canaanites dwelt among them, who were put, again, under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out, and again, this is another tribe, drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or Alabib, or Ashkabab, or whatever. So the Ashterites dwelt among the Canaanites, 
the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out, nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of these other places. They dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute. So we just see this pattern. The Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they did not allow them to come into the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Heres and Agilon and Shalbim. Yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. Now the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah and upward. And again, we're just given a description here of just disobedience. Again, Samuel is setting the stage for what necessitates judges. God was very clear. Clear the land. Be holy, be set apart, worship me and me alone. And he knew their hearts, which is why he was very clear. You're going to succumb to temptation. Don't give any room. Get rid of these people. Because they don't worship me. And they worship other gods. And they worship other idols. And I know your heart. What a warning for us. Your heart is just as fickle as mine. And when we give room, it leads to compromise. Tolerance. We can't tolerate sin in our own hearts, in our own lives, because it doesn't sit idle. You know, sin is a lot like kudzu. If you let it grow, it takes over everything. And you can't, you can't be tolerant of kudzu. Why? For it's not tolerant of anything else. Power poles, trees, abandoned houses, Kudzu will grow, and it will take over, and it will destroy everything. It will not sit idly by. Now, there was always kind of this thing about the culture war in America. The culture war. Now, we don't have to engage in the culture war. Like, we just, you do your thing, we'll do our thing, that's fine. That's not how sin works. That's not how evil works. That's not how wickedness works. It doesn't want peace with you. It wants to conquer you and subject you. And make you accept it as truth and worship it alongside of them. Why? Because when the truth exists and people stand on the truth, it's always a prick to the conscience of the person doing the wicked. God's like, clear the land. And then chapter 1, we get this sad admission that they didn't. Well, we can make money off of them. These aren't bad people. Hey, they helped us. Danger Danger, danger. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, you have to pause right there. This is awesome. Judging by your faces, you don't quite understand why this is awesome. Understand in the Hebrew language, there were no uppercase and lowercase lettering. 
It was all uppercase. In fact, Greek, when Hebrew gets translated Septuagint into Greek, Greek also doesn't have capitals. It's all, it's all one, one case. But you notice that the translators here, and taking this from the original language into English, they make a distinction, don't they? Notice the angel, and the is a definitive article, the angel, not a angel, an angel, the angel, and literally the messenger of the Lord. And they capitalize it, okay? They capitalize it, meaning that the translators recognize that there's something distinct and unique and worthy of notation about this particular angel of the Lord. For, by the way, this is not his first appearance in your Bible. In fact, I'll just run through a few examples quickly. First appearance of the capital A angel of the Lord was with Hagar when she was pregnant. She was off, off the run. The angel of the Lord appeared to her. The angel of the Lord appeared in Genesis 22 to Abraham and Isaac. The angel of the Lord appeared in Genesis 31 to Jacob. Again, the angel of the Lord, we're told, appeared to Moses in the burning bush, Exodus 3. Exodus 14, the angel of the Lord was behind the children of Israel, armed up to the teeth to protect them from the Egyptians when they were at the Red Sea. Go back to Genesis 18, before God judged Sodom, three angels show up, they have dinner. Two angels go forth to judge Sodom. The angel of the Lord broke bread with Abraham and then made a prediction about them having a son, of which Sarah laughed. Numbers 22, this pagan prophet, a guy named Balaam, is going to go curse the children of Israel. He's a hired gun. He's riding on a donkey. The donkey's like, I'm not going anywhere. Balaam starts beating the donkey. The donkey turns, opens his mouth, and begins to talk back to Balaam saying, do you want to die? For the angel of the Lord is standing in front of us. And at that point, Balaam's eyes were opened, and there was the angel of the Lord with a sword drawn. Sometimes you can listen to a jackass. The angel of the Lord. Joshua 5. They get to Jericho. Now, we don't get the phrase, the angel of the Lord. Instead, we get the phrase that the commander of the Lord's armies stood before Joshua and gave him battling, ba battle instructions. And then we have this passage, that the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bohim. The angel of the Lord is what we would call, in theological terms, a Christophany. That is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Incarnation. That's the phrase that we use for, for God becoming flesh. Incarnate. Carne. You like carne asada? It's meat. It's God taking on meat. The incarnation. That's what it means. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And if you're like, what? Are you talking about? First, let me ask you. Did Jesus exist before he became a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and was laid in a manger? Absolutely. 
In fact, we're told that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. John chapter 1, the Word became flesh, incarnate, and dwelt among us. Jesus has always existed. In fact, I would make the argument that any physical manifestation within the Old Testament of God is Jesus. Because we're told in another passage that God the Father is invisible. So we have Jesus. Now, we're told, read it again with the idea that this is Jesus. <laughs> what? Yeah. Then Jesus came up from Gilgal to Bohem. I want more information. Now, why from Gilgal? Well, Gilgal at this point is where the tabernacle of meeting is located. So you have the tabernacle of meeting in Gilgal. This is the presence of God on earth in the Holy of Holies. This is where the Ark of the Covenant exists. This is where the sacrifices are happening. This is where all the priests are working around the clock about the business of the Lord. Play the scene out in your mind. At some point, they're tending to the table of showbread. And, you know, they're doing the things in the outer court of the tabernacle. And there's a rustling behind the curtain. And out of nowhere, you get the pullback, peekaboo. The Shekinah glory, the presence of God in Jesus walks out of the Holy of Holies. We got to have some business, folks. What were the priests doing? And then he walks down to this other town, and then there's an assembly of the people. Word spread fast. God's here. We got to listen. God's having a meeting. Now, if you would need any further evidence of the divine nature of this angel of the Lord, look no further than what he says. I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. An angel can't say that. And it's not a thus says the Lord. This is the angel speaking. Case you don't read the name tag, I'm God. And I've worked in your past. I led you. I delivered you. I brought you out of Egypt. I was the one standing behind you, between you and the armies of Egypt. I was the one that brought manna and water from the earth. I was the one that led you. I was the one that brought you in. I, I, I. And then there's this, and I've got it highlighted. I will never break my covenant with you. Verse 2. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. I delivered you, I brought you, I gave you the victory, I will never break my covenant. And, and by the way, why will God never break his covenant? In the Old Testament, the way that a covenant was sealed. So two parties would make an agreement. And the covenant was bound by each of the two parties uh, 
being good on their, their end of the, of, of the program. When God comes to Abraham, Abraham has this deep sleep. The original covenant that gets established with Abraham and his descendants, God's like, hey, we're going to have a covenant. We're going to have an agreement. And so what they would do is they'd take animals, they'd cut them in half, and they would lay them. So you would have a path of blood. And then it was each party would say, this is my end of the deal. They would walk through it, and they would have the blood at the end of their tassel, signifying that if I don't follow through with my end of the deal, this should be what happens. Now, what's incredible about this original covenant is that God goes through and he tells Abraham, uh-uh. Abraham does not walk through it. God forbids him from walking through it. God says, this covenant is not based on your ability to obey or follow through, but solely on mine. Why would God do that? Because he knew man would fail. He knew he'd fail. And so Jesus says, I will not break my covenant. Do you know he won't break your covenant, his covenant with you? That what Jesus did on the cross is permanent and it's lasting and it's sufficient and it's not predicated upon your ability to measure up? Because how could you? Or to be good enough or to obey? That's not to minimize the importance of obedience because there's a consequence to it. So Jesus says, I had this covenant, don't worry about that but why are you not obeying me? And don't you sense that at the end of, of what is it, verse 2? Why have you done this? And as a result, well, I, you know, I'm going to leave these, the, I'm not going to do it, and they're going to be a thorn in your side. And so it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim. And they sacrificed to the Lord. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. Now again, Samuel is going back and forth in time. The book opens with the death of Joshua. Chapter 2, we have this scene. Joshua's still alive. He's about to die again. This is Samuel establishing, like, hey, all this stuff was going on. Let me back up and tell you why that's bad. Because Jesus showed up and was like, don't do it. <laughs> don't. That Jesus pleads with them. Jesus already saw their hearts. He already saw their tendency. He already knew their proclivities. And he warns them, my covenant is sure. But man, your life will be so much more difficult if you don't obey me. And friend, that is the great lesson of judges if you want to boil it all down into one thing. Jesus loves you and he died to save you and to give you a life. And that is sure. But if you don't obey him, and if you make compromise, it will be a thorn. Life will be so much harder to enjoy. Now, I, I do think that some of the saddest people, and oh man, aren't I guilty of it too. So I don't say this in condemnation. I think the saddest person is that person that has enough of Jesus in their life. Like to be miserable in the world. 
There's enough of truth and enough of the spirit that like you go out and you do the wrong things and your feet take you to the wrong path, down the wrong paths and you're like, I'm, kind of, I'm miserable. I have enough Jesus to make it real hard for me to be in the world. But on the flip side, you have enough of the world in your life. That church can be a miserable place to come. What's the difference between conviction and condemnation? The difference is very subtle. The Bible's clear. There should be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That when we sin, when we err, when we make a mistake, that we should not feel condemned. But we should feel convicted. Convicted for repentance. Now, again, I hate the way that people talk about repentance. Because the immediate application of repentance, you feel convicted of your sin, you should repent. And immediately we start to think about all the things I need to be doing to correct whatever error I was making. That's not repentance. That's the fruit of repentance. But repentance is about facing, turning around, and going back to a place that you started. Which was where? The cross. You see, when you're making a mistake and you're, you're entering into sin and the Holy Spirit speaking and convicting, oh my goodness, i got to come back to the cross, the place of forgiveness, the place of restoration, the first work, his work and his alone. Condemnation is a tool of the enemy to keep us com- from coming back to the cross because we feel condemned. Oh, I don't want to go and see Jesus again. Let there be no condemnation. But let there be an appropriate application of conviction. There's this great assembly. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, The servant of the Lord died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the borders of the inheritance of Timnah, Hermes, and the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Bass. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord or the work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. I'll close with this one, this one statement, this one thought. Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord. The translation's, the translation's bad. Because the idea here, when you read it in the English, is, well, they just didn't know. They didn't know. They didn't know God. They didn't know God's commands. They didn't know God's scriptures. You know, after the generations came and went, you had a generation, which we've already read a little bit of their lack of conquest. They just didn't know any better. They didn't know the Lord. That's not an accurate translation. This word in the Hebrew, know, it's very sexual in connotation. In fact, when you read about relationships between, like, men and women, and Abraham knew Sarah. It wasn't like, hello. It was, hello. 
It's to know in an intimate way. It's not to have the knowledge of or to lack the knowledge of. Like the idea here is like, well, they just didn't know intellectually the things that they were supposed to know. No, 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 that's not what's being said because they knew. They knew of the Lord and they knew the commands of the Lord and they knew the intentions of the Lord, but they didn't know personally the Lord. That's why we open God's word, and that's why we get to know him. For the more you get to know him, how can we not but obey him? But when we're not relating with him, when we're leaving that covenant relationship, it's easier for the heart to get wayward, isn't it? Look, we'll, we'll stop there. Father.